Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another cloudy day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Scott Ewing. Scott is the Principal Solicitor and Managing Director of Ewing Law, a private client law firm based here in Westminster that specialises in every stage of potential, prospective and ongoing criminal proceedings. Scott, very warm welcome to you and thanks ever so much for taking the time to join us this morning. No problems, pleasure. It's a real pleasure having you on the air with us as well. Now, the purpose of this discussion is to really establish your take on leadership as a whole. So if we just dive straight into that and look at that word leader in isolation just for a second, what does that word actually mean to you, Scott, and how does it resonate? Well, although it's rather a cliche, it's written by example. Um, working harder than those you're trying to inspire and simultaneously providing as much encouragement as those to climb the ladder within your particular sector. I think it's incredibly important as a leader to encourage and inspire people. Um, I think you're absolutely right in saying that. And when we think of inspirations, just for um, a second, um, have there any have there been any people who stick out that have really had a profound influence on you and maybe inspired you as you develop through your career? Um, yes, there's a couple of people in my, well, it's now a training contract, there's then articles back, back when I'd done it. There was an old managing clerk, an old-fashioned managing clerk called Bob Jackson, um, who basically, um, I wasn't there to photocopy, I wasn't there to be a runner, I was there to get dive deep in uh, from day one. Um, and he basically taught me the, the ways of being practical as opposed to sticking your head in a textbook, you've got to deal with things practically. Every, every, every problem is a solution. It can be a bumpy road, but you can get there. Um, the other person would be Oliver Blunt QC, um, who from day one took me under his wing. And for no reason why he had to, I was in my articles. And even at that stage, he was just before he, he took silk. Um, and thereafter, I've worked with him for over 25 years. And even when I'm, he's not involved in a case that I'm doing, um, he's always there at the end of the forum for some astute tactical advice, some strategic evaluation of where I want to, to lead a case, actually based on strict confidentiality of the matter I'm involved if he's not. But those are the two that primarily stick out for me. And they're an interesting pair, aren't they? Because um, they're very much mentor sorts of figures. And those yeah. are people who can really be the most influential leaders out there, as opposed to those who are maybe at the top of a business and tend to stick their heads above the parapet. Leadership yeah. doesn't necessarily mean being very much out in the public eye, does it, as such? There are no very effective no. people who just go about their business quietly in that sense. Well, the, the people that inspire me most are those that deal with the practicalities of leadership uh, as opposed to putting themselves on a pedestal and saying, look at me. Uh, that, that, does, that doesn't resonate to me. I want to see people that, wait a minute, with a bit of hard work, some graft and some ingenuity, I could be that person one day. I could climb the ladder. I could be at the top of the tree helping others on the same journey that I've been on. And do you think that perhaps we recognise those sorts of leaders as much as we should do? No. Um, some people are born into leadership. Some people may have had advantages of one sort or another. But it's those that have, that have been able to do it themselves. Um, and and, there's, and there's, no, there's no remedy for hard work. Um, unless you fall into something gratuitously, hard work is the only thing that's going to get you there. Hard work, some humility, but a good fortune along the way doesn't, doesn't, doesn't do you any harm. Um, but yeah, that, that's the ingredient that I certainly look for. Mm, can see exactly where you're coming from there, Scott. And um, what point would you say that you pretty much decided that going into business for yourself and launching your own practice was going to be the way to go for you? 
Well, it, it came um, sort of 1995. Um, uh, I joined um, a, a firm, a top firm, firm in, in Merseyside uh, for personal reasons. Um, and but I, I, even though I was only 18 months qualified, the work I'd, I'd, had following I had in London stayed with me. And I didn't know at that stage that the senior partner, he'd always harbored um, dreams of opening in London. And so he basically um, said, okay, I'll fund this. So then I went to London 18 months qualified to set up in Mayfair. And so I was sort of isolated on my own to a degree. Um, and so the leadership happened there because I had a chair on the mobile phone. I got told, right, start the firm. And thereafter, we ended up, you know, many years later before I started on my own with dozens and dozens of lawyers. And I'm aware, of course, that you do have something of a background in boxing um, as well, Scott. Are there any yeah. examples of maybe leadership styles, tactics that you took from that sort of sporting background and were able to directly apply to um, your law career? Yeah, it's just, it's just don't give up. Um, I've got an example of someone I've met numerous times is the Sky Sports commentator, the next world champion, Johnny Nelson. Johnny Nelson, by his own admission, was absolutely dreadful boxer. I think he lost his first five amateur fights. He wasn't very good. I mean, professionally, everyone said, son, what are you doing? But he, he had a belief. Um, he had to get a bit of help from others around him, renowned Brendan Ingle uh, in Sheffield. So look, you've got the belief. you just got to follow it through. And then he became the world champion, held the most ever defences for the Cruiserweight title. And that was someone who wasn't born, well, he didn't believe he was born with a natural talent to do what he'd done, but through sheer hard work, dedication, and others as opposed to himself, instilling the self-belief in him, he came through shining. And now you see him on TV, he's got the confidence, he's got the humility and the respect from all around him. He's a great example in the world of boxing. I think that's a really interesting example as well, because we've already said um, today that sometimes people are born into leadership, but people aren't just born necessarily good leaders, aren't they? People can still become no. good and leading figures within their field, and that just proves it. Well, that's right. That people can be born into um, esteemed business families, um, but don't have the confidence to be a leader themselves because they're overshadowed uh, from those that they come before. And that must, that must be a daunting task to have to lead up to some of those leadership skills when you know yourself you may not um, be adaptable and as powerful presence as those that you're trying to follow. And, and that's a, 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 a difficult task to overcome, and that's when the self-belief then comes into play. And I think also an important part of being able to learn and develop as well is the ability to be independent, take on your own form of leadership, try things for yourself. And when there are one or two setbacks, be able to sort of learn from those um, as well. Failure is an important part of uh, leadership for sure, because that's how we learn. But I think, yeah, I've made, yeah. Yeah. But I've made many mistakes, without a doubt. But, mm. you know, everyone makes mistakes in every step of their life. Um, but as long as you learn from the mistakes, everyone can make a mistake, but only a fool makes the same mistake twice. Mm, that's exactly right. Do you think particularly among younger generations especially, there is a little bit of a risk-averse sort of nature because there's maybe a fear of failure and a fear of disappointing and a fear of criticism? Well, uh, growing up, there's no such thing for me as social media. Um, I, I think social media can be extremely cruel um, because it, every part of your life, whether it be um, what you're wearing one day, um, what you're going on holiday or what music you like. Uh, you can be trolled by the most horrible people uh, and it massively affects the self-esteem. Uh, when that self-esteem keeps on getting hit, hit and hit, uh, some people don't know where to go in life. You know, they seem to be cornered, they can be cocooned uh, into the, in the sanctum of their own life because they haven't got the confidence to overcome these trolls who are certainly sat behind a keyboard or a phone um, making fun at people, not realising by the margin for the, for the best part the actual adverse effect is having on other human beings.
I think as a leader, I mean, it's always been necessary to have a little bit of a thick skin just to shoulder criticism because the book does start with you. But that seems to be even more the case now just because there's so much more accessibility, isn't there? Yeah, I think the, the accessibility leads to accountability. Um, you, you can be under a, a microscope um, more than even 10 years ago. Now, every single action you take, um, it can be commented upon, but it be any type of social media platform in the media in general. Um, and, you know, the gossip monger is always, you see such and such comment on social media. Well, yeah, you've got to take it on your shoulders. And you need broad shoulders uh, just to take it on and move forward. Otherwise, you're simply going to get stuck in a rut. Mm, I think that's exactly right. And um, we've also heard a great deal of um, sort of social media criticism based on various approaches to the COVID-19 pandemic that we're going through at the moment, particularly at the, uh, yeah. the government level. Um, it's been an incredible learning curve uh, for businesses. And in the context of Ewing Law, how has it been sort of meeting this crisis from your point of view? Because I can imagine that's been a tremendous challenge. Uh, yeah, before before um, the, the, the virus, uh, the criminal justice system was on its knees. It was crumbling through lack of investment in infrastructure, court buildings, uh, and there was a massive backlog in any event of cases because the, the, half the courts were, were sitting empty because there wasn't sufficient funds to uh, have judges, etc., uh, presiding over cases. Um, we were thankful that we would be okay getting through it, but um, there'd be many, many, many casualties because trying to cash flow a business, not knowing um, when, when a trial is going to go ahead. And if someone's publicly funded, they're not going to get paid for a case until it concludes. Whereas now it's very difficult to go to your bank and say, look, I need a, a, an extension, an overdraft to whatever, because you can't give any time still when it's going to be paid back. The added difficulty of, we, did, we didn't furlough any staff ourselves, but those who did, and then the courts then, and prisons then reopened, and you start thinking, wait, wait a minute, we haven't prepared these. You know, to get all the staff on, double up the work, etc. It's been very, very difficult. Um, and even um, the Law Society issued guidance a few weeks ago, now all in opinion, saying that they believe any, any firms with four partners or less, there could be over 70% of um, businesses shutting down by the end of the year. They are horrific figures. Um, and through no fault of, uh, of many of those that will be will be hit by it because they're very honest, hardworking people. That's absolutely right. And um, I think during this period, um, there's been a renewed focus on things such as sustainability, mental health, well-being, but also on the uh, the care industry as well, because that's been underfunded yeah. for quite some time. So that's really sort of coming to the fore a little bit now. And perhaps it could even follow suit with the criminal justice system as well, because there are some things where cracks have been really exposed during this time. And that's something that should be heeded going forward for certain, isn't it? Well, I think the... The, the, the preliminary hearings that have been dealt with by your phoning in, uh, business Skype, Zoom, etc., uh, by and large, they've worked because if someone's traveling, you know, if you travel a couple of hundred months, uh, miles to a, a hearing, we don't actually need someone physically present in court, even your client, as long as he can be with you or he can dial in or he can be on video, as long as he's been properly advised beforehand. That saves a lot of money, it saves a lot of time. Um, and I think I don't think the courts will ever go back to the way they were because I think technology has to be reinvested in. And I know the government are trying to do that by the video links in the prisons because we simply are not allowed in. Mm. To give you an example um, of the, uh, the backlog there's going to be, I had a client charged um, nine days ago, very serious matter, conspiracy spline over 200 kilograms of cocaine. And we got, the next day we applied to Roman Scrubs for a video link. And we got, the next day we got it back, the 4th of September for one hour. Mm. Now, before that, he has to enter a plea to obviously extremely serious matters. We won't see him. So today we've written to, well, yesterday we've written to the court saying, look, can we utilise some of the court video links 
because you can't take instructions over a matter like that naturally over the phone. It just doesn't work. Um, so I think there'll be more and more backlogs. Um, we're doing desperately trying to keep a murder case on, um, as is the prosecution, Her Honour Judge Robinson at Croydon, uh, as, as the, the three people that are facing uh, very serious allegations. And everyone's working together, perhaps more than they would have done before the lockdown to keep a case on track. Everyone's doing their bit. Um, so a bit more camaraderie in that respect and a bit more lateral and practical thinking to keep things online. And that can, that can only be applauded. Let's certainly hope that that's going to be the case uh, going forward, that people really do hold um, that in um, in consideration. And if we think about the sort of long-term future for the uh, the sector and indeed for Ewing Law as well, Scott, before we do wrap things up, and um, what do you envision over the next sort of year or so as we move through COVID-19, hopefully emerge from the other side and then really begin to look to the long-term future? Um, I think the, the use of technology, um, I, there's been many advocates of introducing far more technology into the courts, prison systems, police stations, um, I think that's a given now. Um, the government has already started that, and that should make the system more um, uh, user-friendly. But there has to be vast investment into the criminal justice system. Firstly, they've got to clear a massive backlog of cases because there's many, many in custody that potentially um, could be home by now, being acquitted. Um, the, the, the facilities in the courts have to be improved. The prisons have to be improved, the facilities. Um, um, we are now concentrating on not running around the country, um, seeing clients, and we would, we would embrace the use of technology, which we've been doing, and it's been working, uh, except not seeing our clients in custody and dealing with that by video and appropriate. Um, things, have, things have actually been more productive in terms of the work we've been able to carry out effectively, uh, and that's something that we, we certainly will be uh, doing as a rule of thumb now. Um, you have to reinvent yourself at the same time. Um, in terms of the areas you're looking at. And we've had a couple of lucky breaks um, during the lockdown in terms of work that's just fallen into us, um, which we've now embraced, and we're looking forward to expanding in those areas. Um, so it, it's been an eye-opener. It's, it's a shame, obviously, it's taken these tragic circumstances, um, to, certainly to open my eyes, to be a little bit more selective of the work we take on and far more selective in the way we do the work. So we've had to rationale the fact that a lot of clients like the face-to-face meetings in different parts of the country to balance it against our resources because our resources um, are also going to be limited now. We won't have to make anyone redundant or anything like that. Um, but a lot of people will. Um, so we're crying shame because a lot of people didn't want to go into the criminal justice system anymore because of the lack of funding, etc. And I think that's going to be a, a real acute problem um, for the government, the law society, etc., uh, to tackle head on before we're left with um, uh, criminal uh, lawyers being a dying breed. It's an uncertain time for the industry, isn't it? But as you say, I mean, technology is certainly going to have a part to play as we do adjust to this uh, new normal that we're venturing into. And, you know, Scott, I think it would actually be fantastic from a listener's perspective, given how um, informative and insightful it's been having you on with us today to catch up at some point in the next year, just to see at what point we're at then and um, just understand exactly where the industry is heading at that point. I think that would be really interesting. Yeah, I'd love that. Not a problem. Likewise, it's a shame we don't have uh, more time on the programme today, otherwise we could discuss it all morning, I'm sure. But I've got to say, it's been an incredible pleasure having you on the uh, the programme, Scott. I've really, really Thank enjoyed this discussion. And most importantly, do take care and do stay safe with all still going yeah, on. Because, likewise to your listeners. Yeah. Thank you, Scott. Certainly not out of the woods yet with that. That is uh, Scott Ewing speaking, Managing Director and Principal Solicitor at Ewing Law. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord David Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active 
fifth member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and also the chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. He rose to prominence to become one of the most notable politicians of his generation, did Lord Blunkett, holding a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years, all despite being blind from birth. He was elevated to the House of Lords as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough in August of 2015. And I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with him. That is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. In the circumstances, there are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all of those who can. Uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and production of goods, services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system, we're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more 
creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's a severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's a, had his life in... Uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, 
they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top, and that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice, uh, the health secretary often chairs corporate meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows, those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because 
-hmm. My experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, now- it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated, Mm -hmm. scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown, these kind of things you you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations? that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will 
make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, but very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of 
low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it, it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond 
Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and um, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer, and I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Sakir is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Sakir need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, Sakir uh, Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can 
support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government. Mm-hmm. But also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, Do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.